afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to this episode of Broadcast. I'm Billy Kirkwood. We've got a great episode for you. But before we kick things off and I give you a little more details about that, make sure to like, share and subscribe. Everything we're doing here at Broadcast. You can check out some of the archive episodes that are, of course, over on Spotify. But let me tell you, if it's your first time joining in, we're not just a podcast about beards or beard oils were actually a lifestyle and attitudes podcast you could say uh, we like to take a little journey throughout the mind throughout the face throughout the body that got away from me as a metaphor we'll keep going right uh, uh one more time uh, if you're looking to check out anything that's going on make sure to head over to broadbeard oils lots of great stuff is coming out as well and don't forget to check out the new range of merchandise which this is not part of and it's probably an interesting way to hand him a p45 right our guest today I think the best way to describe him would be a professional adventurer. He has run, swam, and cycled Great Britain. He's battled jellyfish and has a lovely, lovely red beard. So you know the best thing about that is, it makes me feel like being Scottish, I have an affinity with him already. Very excited to welcome on. Absolutely wonderful. Mr. Sean Conway. Sean! Hey, that is literally the best introduction I've ever had. <laughs> oh, Considering I let it get away from me quite a few times, uh, I'm delighted with that news. Uh, how are you? I have to say, of all the people I've gone to interview, just before it, uh, Sean was saying that my background looked nice, yours looked absolutely incredible. It looks like it's out of a, a Wes uh, Anderson movie. That absolutely looks uh, wonderful what you've got going on behind you. Are you at home I'm... just now? I am. This is my office. I'm basically a wannabe 18th century explorer. I, I think I was I was born 200 years too late. I think so. I'm just desperately clutching at history right now. <laughs> it, it, it turns out you can get sharpers down at Liddles. It's very difficult. <laughs> if only we could. If only we could. Uh, we've got it. We've got to dive in at the start. Um, I have been obsessed since I have been obsessed with your career, and it's not even a career. It's a it's a full blown. You're a full-blown walking novel, I think. It's, <laughs> one day, I think, Steven Spielberg or, or someone that makes these huge epics is going to do, yes, we got the Conway script. We got the Conway script. They'll never believe it. Um, your journey certainly in coming to the UK is an amazing one. Um, from what I've managed to, to make out, you came here with £100 in your wallet, and that was it. Pretty much. So when I sort of, I, I went to college after high school and studied uh -huh. photog photography. Yeah. Um, and I did that for a couple of years and then sort of, I have an Irish passport. So I thought, oh, you know, why don't I go to Europe for a year, maybe yeah. two years. And, you know, that's the center of the world. You know, when you look on a map, you know, Britain's up there at the top, in the middle. Traveling from there is a lot easier than it was from South Africa uh -huh. um, and, and Zimbabwe, where I was born. Um, so I thought, right, well, let me let me go to Europe and um, go to London because that's where it all happens, right? Um, unfortunately, I couldn't afford to go to London because um, I literally sold everything. I sold my car, you know, my first car that my parents got me, I sold that and sold various other things just to afford my plane ticket pretty much wow um, what, made, what made you want to and come 100 to... quid is what i had left left over what made you want to come to europe all the way from there i mean was it literature or was it just uh, what 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 gave you that yearning to come here was it just the the sense of adventure or was it just like you say it's it's the point of the map it's a place to start um it's the it was literally the point of the map and also it was probably a little bit of laziness to be fair on my part, you know, I have English and Irish family. I have an Irish passport. Traveling to Europe was easy, yeah. um, easier than a lot of other countries. Everyone spoke English. 
and I needed I needed work straight away. I had a hundred quid, so I had to literally, you know, a hundred quid doesn't last long in in England. No. Um, so I managed to pre-organ pre-find a job from South Africa in Cambridge um, in mm. a salad factory. So you know when you buy all your your pre-made salads in the packets nowadays. Yeah. Um, basically, I was in the the refrigerated conveyor belt, chopping up all the lettuce and. You know, because you've got to cut out the hard bits of the lettuce and all yeah, the dead yeah, leaves before it goes into the machine that mixes it all together, right? Um, so I was doing that five pounds eighty an hour. It was great. I loved it. So I did that for just over a month, just to save enough money uh-huh. to move to London to then look for work. So I think I saved about six hundred quid in the first month, right. um, which kind of gave me a bit of a buffer for London. So I moved to right. London, and that's when I was just trying to get, you know work in the photography sector uh-huh. whatever it was and i landed up working in a photo lab um snappy snaps i think everyone i don't know if they're still <laughs> around anymore uh, you know uh, they were yellow if, yellow and green <laughs> if they are if snappy snaps if you're out there i would suggest uh, now might be the time to get that little endorsement <laughs> from sean uh, yeah. get the checkbooks out guys uh, and yeah. that's all we gotta say uh, so you worked at snappy snaps it's it's not maybe the dream star but it's a start It's a start, yeah, you, you're right, you know, I was, for, you know, it, yeah, it was definitely a start, you know, it was great, I was earning enough money to sort of, you know, dabble in, in photo- actual photography on the sidelines, so mm. at the beginning I was working six days a week, um, Monday to Saturday, and having Sunday off to try and get photography jobs, and then every time I got a little bit more photography jobs in, I would cut a, a day down in, in the lab, so it was sort of six days, right. and five, and four, and three, to one and that process took six years you know and it's just um and i'm glad it took that long you know you set a foundation you learn um Mm. and it's been a real lesson to me in this current job career or whatever i'm doing now as a sportsman to sort of not to play the long game you know everyone was like you know when i tell people like oh it took me six years to quit actual regular income to pursue my own photography they all go wow what you worked in a lab for six years and i was like yeah but it was fun actually you know everyone else in the lab was also budding photographers and you know it was great it was a good laugh you know and that that energy would have been great like being around those other creative people as well is that something you know i've seen in your work you you like you like feeding off the energy of other people that are excited in what they're doing is that was that something even in that early stage that you enjoyed Definitely. I call it the snowball of life. You know, when you have an idea, you, you're a snowflake and it's beautiful and the idea is pure and everything. But often that's to get momentum in the idea. The snowflake needs to kind of become a snowball and the snowball is other snowflakes and other people jumping on board. And eventually yeah. you gather this momentum. And it's great because actually at one point, you know, the ball eventually gets so big that more people want to jump on. And then that's where you want to get to in, in any idea you have when you build this amazing bubble of network of people. And that's what it was like in the lab. And also it was great to, you know, in, in this lab, there was probably only one or two other English people working in the lab. I think there was okay. t- 10 sort of staff all on different shifts and that sort of thing. Right. Um, but there was loads of Europeans and all of a sudden I got to meet Swedes and Swiss and 
and Aussies as well and Kiwis. And it was just for me, like, you know, I was going to come just for a year of travel, but eventually just kind of, <laughs> I kind of lost my flight back, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and it's cool as well, because it's almost like the travel almost came to you. Because London's such this amazing little melting pot of all these different cultures, particularly in the sort of creative realms as well. So you're getting a little taste of all this, this little pot. Was it round about that time? Because it's quite a sudden change, as to be said, in terms of going into what you do now. Um, uh, even though I'm sure these elements of it that go side by side. When yeah. was that day in the lab where you went? Time for yeah. another change. When when did that well, actually, come about? It was quite a long time after I left the lab. So there was uh, it was ten years that I arrived in the UK to uh -huh. my new job, um, almost to the day. Um, so it was. 11th of February 2012, I arrived in the UK. 18th of February 2000, and uh, sorry, 2002. 11th of February 2002, I arrived in the UK. 18th of February 2012, I set off to cycle around the world. So the first six years I was in the lab, and then there was a four-year period between ending the lab and my new life, and that's where I messed it up. So that's the mistakes I made. So I basically I had this dream of being this amazing travel photographer and traveling the world. But in the first six years, you know, you say yes to everything. You're learning. I was in my early twenties, and I was like, yes, yes, yes. And I did a few. I did a few amazing jobs. I, you know, one of my first big paid jobs was ten days in India, photographing a catalog um, for an, for a rucksack outdoor company. So, and then I got a job on the Harry Potter films, which was phenomenal. You know, I was working on set in the stills department with the main photographer. I was just helping him out. As a bit of a run around but it was amazing to just be on set on harry potter i mean that was yeah. phenomenal right so things were going well in in the while i had the lab job and i think they were going well because i didn't i could be a bit more creative and a bit more free with the jobs i chose because right. i had the regular income and even though the regular income was tiny i was you know when i was working for three or four days a week i was mm -hmm. probably bringing in 500 pounds a month maybe Right. which was fine like it covered the rent and it covered some of my food and that sort of thing so like at least i could survive right it which was a base, gave me the base. yeah exactly um and that's what that was enough and then but the problem is as soon as i went full-time into photography i all of a sudden got the panic and got the fear and then i just needed to to pay the rent right and mm. and and i was like right well let me find something within photography that pays easily and pays well, you know, because there's so many things you can do in photography. You know, you can be a travel photographer or a funeral photographer, right? You know, there's right. there's there's such a big genre. So I stumbled across the the, the sort of the school photography market, okay. um, and especially at nursery schools. So going into nursery schools and doing photos of all the little kids and toddlers, and then selling them at stupid prices to the parents. And wow, did do parents buy rubbish pictures of their kids? I, 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 <laughs> I'm have, one of them. <laughs> I have one of them. I have one of them too. To the point that we have anything done by a private photographer, I make sure he sends me the bloopers. You know, the, the ones with the cat up here and all that. Yeah, Those are the exactly. ones I want. But oh, it's, yeah. like, like you see, it's it's paying the bills. It's keeping the lights on. Uh, it's maybe not what you want to do, but it's it's a yeah. step closer to it. Yeah, but but the problem was it paid too well. You know, wow. at, at 25, 26, I would go and photograph 100 kids in a nursery and right. I would probably walk away with 2,000 pounds. You know, 
is mad. Like it's mad yeah. money. Like all of a sudden, you know, all these parents, you know, all of them just bought the CD back then. You know, it was all sort of, you know, get all your images on a CD. And most of them went with that. And it was 50 quid a CD. Like people were like, yeah, whatever. It's cheaper than going to a studio, which it yeah. is. It, it was. And actually we were good. You know, I set up the business with a friend of mine, James Carnegie. Um, yeah. And, you know, we were good. We took better photographs than our competitors. We gave the parents more options. We had a better online ordering system. Like, you know, we were on top of it. We were young. We were excited about it. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, it just paid too well. So the next time I got this travel opportunity to go, I remember someone, and I said, I can't believe I said no. There was an opportunity to go to the South Pole to photograph um, some expedition there. Not to do the whole expedition, but just to go there. And they said, well, you're going to have to kind of pay your own way. Um, we can't pay you and you have to pay. But it was only £3,000. Right. For that Which, experience. I mean, £3,000 is a lot of money. Don't, don't get me wrong, but it's nowhere near what an actual South Pole expedition costs. And I, I was sort of sitting there going, well, actually, that week I've got quite a few nurseries I could photograph. And, oh. you know, I might bring in, you know, X, Y, Z money and on that and you know well, I could spend money and I you know I, I'm not going to do the South Pole thing and I was like whoa you know now I look back and I was just like you idiot you know that's what you wanted to be this you know world-renowned travel photographer but yeah you you were sort of not doing you know saying no to those gigs in favor of money and that was the the sort of the beginning of the slippery slope to be honest um, and then, people people yeah. don't understand it certainly when you become self-employed I mean it's quite a, it's because you are it's it's a scary thing to have, when you do have that base of money. I can say that as a, a comedian, I used to have a, a nice job for a, working for a media production company, which was paid me just to turn up and push buttons and edit things. Then I became a stand-up. Then you start doing the gigs where you're like, oh, these are just the basic things. So when cool things were coming in, I wouldn't say yes to them because I'm like, well, you know, if I do jonglers on a Saturday night to a hundred stags and hens who hate my guts, I, you know, I can pay for this. But if yeah. I were to maybe go and do that that festival down there, I'd have a lot of fun and it'd be what I'd want. I want the art. Oh, yeah. for these for these jonglers. So people, yeah. I don't think people <clears throat> in that realm quite understand that. But it's 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 a hard space to get out of. So. Yeah. When did we get out of that space? There must have been a moment where you just went, right, I'm changing yeah. this. I'm changing yeah, this. I mean, what I should have done is, you know, every year I should have re reviewed my clients and I should have just binned, because it's always the low the low end clients that pay right. the least that give you the most headache often. It's quite common that because, you know, they're trying to push you on price and that, you know, so I should have, I should have binned the nurseries that only had, 10, 15 mm. kids in, you know, and I should have right. just gone, right, all I'm going to do is one nursery a week and I'm going to do a big one and I'm going to make it worth their while and give them commission and blah, 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 which would have given me the rest of the week. Obviously, there's a bit of ed editing involved and, you know, the secure online stuff and whatever. But, you know, if you photograph a nursery on a day, you know, you, you probably have one more day of admin and then the rest is just taken care of online um, right. with ordering and that. And, um, yeah, so I should have done that. I didn't. I just was like, right, more kids, more kids, more kids, more money, 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 because in the future I'll be able to re retire early and then go and do that. But actually all that happens is you, the busier you are and the more money you earn, the more stress there is and the less time you have anyway. And um, so I remember turning 30. That was the, the crux. Okay. And I remember sort of sitting there going, holy moly, I'm, I've been doing photography now for 15 years because I started when I was 15. Yeah. Um, I've been doing it nearly 10 years in London. Um, 
and I have not done any travel gigs in the last five, six years, you know. Um, I went through my my sort of shot, you know, when you I just saw how many images were in my in my on my hard drive. And I had I think seven hundred and fifty thousand images within Whoa. my hard drive, which is mainly school stuff, but it, yeah. you know, I did a bit of music photography back in the day as well, um, before that as as hobbies. And I think in my sort of fun folder or the passion project folder, I maybe had five thousand, you know, compared to seven hundred and fifty thousand of the stuff I didn't like. And just okay. I thought that's wrong. You know, why am I not traveling? And I just fallen out of love with it. So I went into my office, um, went to James, my business partner. I said, can you just buy me out? I don't know what I'm going to do, but I just don't want to do this anymore. I have no plan, but I want out. Um, and he said, are you sure? Yeah, yeah. I said, yeah, definitely. He said, oh, okay, cool. And, you, you know, looking through 10 years of spreadsheets and getting the calculator out. And then right at the end, he's like, right, mate, done the, done the calculations, you know. Um, I'll give you one pound. <laughs> I said, I'll take it. Yeah. Well, I always wondered where that one pound figure came from, yeah. uh, which I read about. And that was, that's insane. So, and you were just, was that a sense of relief? Was that a sense of relief to go? Right, Initially, okay. yeah. You yeah. can actually see the pound behind me. So that there is the frame. Oh, pound is that the pound? My, is, yeah. Now, yeah, I'm is. right in thinking that, that, fra <laughs> that, frame, that frame itself cost you four pounds. Is that right? Yeah. So the first thing I do is so it's, yeah, it's, it, it costs it, it did cost four quid. So actually, it was the worst business decision <laughs> ever. So I, I got a pound for the business and then spent four quid framing the pounds. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I mean, I could have haggled for more money, but James is a very good friend of mine, and he's still a good friend of mine, and it wasn't worth it, you know, to lose a friendship. And also, it was me kind of being dogged and being going, you know what? Right from this day. I'm not going to make decisions based purely on my financial outcome, wow. um, which I know is is completely simplistic and naive in a lot of ways. But at the time, it's what I needed. It's what I needed. Right? So then the next step was, right, I want to go traveling because that was my dream, just to go traveling and the camera was going to be my passport to that. Um, okay. But I didn't, firstly, I didn't have a camera. It, it all went with the sale. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. And then... I just thought outside the box. I thought, well, how can I go traveling? How can I get someone else to pay for me to go traveling? That was my thinking. So I was thinking, well, you know, what if I signed up to some volunteering and, and went and, you know, built a school in, in Africa or Asia or whatever. Okay. Yeah, I could do that. But then that was limiting me to one location. You know, I wanted to actually do a travel. So then I suddenly thought, well, actually, you know, I've seen loads of people like Mark Beaumont cycle around the world and he had logos on him. I see people climb Everest with sponsors, logos and, and all these sort of things. So I kind of thought, well, is that a thing? You know, do people just think of silly ideas and records to break mm -hmm. in the world of travel and get funding from sponsors, you know? Um, so I thought, well, let me, let me think of something, some sort of record that involves travel okay. that I think I could probably break if I trained really hard. Um, and that's when I came up with the round the world cycle record, which actually coincided with the first ever round the world bike race in 2012. And that, yeah, I signed up for that. Didn't have a bike or anything that, that I could ride. I had a bike. Uh, it was way too big for me. <laughs> um, and 
Yeah, that, I mean, the only reason I thought I could do that is I'd already cycled Land's End to John and Groats a couple of years before that. Yes. Um, and that kind of got me hooked on the hooked on it. And actually, it's quite funny, actually. When I finished Land's End, John and Groats in 2008, I remember getting home, washing my bikes. It was nice and shiny. And I remember going, wow, this is going to be the beginning of these epic cycle adventures. I'm going to cycle everywhere from now on. And I put the bike in my shed and didn't look at it again for another two years. Oh, no. <laughs> <But> no. <laughs> And, uh, I had all the ideas, but I was very bad at executing them, you know. Um, in saying that, you're just on a cycle from Land's End to John O'Groats. That's, that's pretty impressive for the, the layman, dare I suggest. Like, well, like, like to me, uh, it, it, it took me 25 days, and the record is under two days. So it, it wasn't exactly groundbreaking. I think I was doing 30 miles a day or something. <laughs> To be honest, I think it'd take me a couple of years. So you're already <laughs> doing pretty well. Uh, so... And now it's come for a bit of a reset. You're you're wanting to do the around the world cycle, which just sounds uh, it sounds so um, almost Jules Verne-esque and just it being a huge style of adventure. Um, you don't have a bike. You get. I assume you get a bike. Yeah. Unless yeah. we open up the shed, um, <laughs> you get you get a new bike. You're going to go on this. So there must be a feeling of exhilaration. You're getting to do the. You're taking the camera. You're doing the bike. I well. Just as a point of order, are you going? Are, are you planning in time to actually take in what's going on around you, or are you more focused on the race? Is it a is it an entire thing for you? So I remember speaking to a guy called Nick Sanders who had the round the world cycle record back in the eighties, and he said one thing to me. Okay. He said, "Sean, the records get forgot forgotten or broken, but you only get one chance to cycle around the world." And I really struggled with that, actually. I kind of wish he hadn't told me that because for me at the beginning, it was like record, 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 record. Because the per actually what was going to happen in my head is I was going to do this year of traveling, you know, six months of training, six months of cycling around the world, get the record. Yay. I can, you know, I've proved to myself I'm worth something. And in doing so, I would have fallen back in love with travel photography. I would have got back home and decided to further my travel photography career. So that was the game plan. But then Nick was like, remember to have an adventure. So I was like, okay, well, he is right. You know, I'm not going to get a second chance at this. So my version of trying to have an adventure was trying to do a little bit of each continent um, other than Antarctica, of course. So I did, you know, no one does Africa or South America um, in, a, in a round the world attempt, really. Um, but I wanted to do a little bit. So because you have to go east to west, I went down Spain, Morocco, then flew to South America, North America, Australia. So that was my version of it. But to be honest, I wasn't there to smell the roses. And, you know, everyone says, ah, oh, it's all about the journey, not the destination. I'm like, sod that. It's all about crossing that finish line. <laughs> so, no, there was very little sort of enthusiasm to to see the world it was for me it was a physical endeavor that happened yeah. to be around the world but also you do kind of see the world you know of course i knew that i was going to see the world because i could have done a different cycling record around a track which i you know didn't want to do so although you know for me it kind of ticked all the boxes i was going to do something that i thought was out of my my reach i was going to go around the world and it was even though i was you know not seeing much it's a bit like wine tasting you know if you have 10 you know i went through 23 countries so imagine you go to a wine tasting night and there's 23 little little shots of wine you don't get to the third one and go oh actually you know what i'm going to stop here and buy a whole bottle and finish that 
you know, you just, you carry on doing the wine tasting. And that's what the round the world record was for me. I kind of wine tasted all the different countries. And now I have a little bit of a a hint of the flavor of, of, you know, South America and Peru. And I'm going to go back and with my family later. So that was kind of my analogy on, on the speed records around the world, you know. But um, but what an adventure to have! Even like you say, it's maybe not getting the time to to savor it in the way you might like to. You've got this new focus, and this is the beginning of a a new another chapter. There seems it's like I said at the beginning, you're a walking novel. It seems to be these there's always these new dawns. It's like oh, this is it. This is the final act. Here comes the Harrison Ford cameo. Oh no, here's another one. Uh, Morgan Freeman's going to be working very hard on the voiceovers for this one. Uh, we just keep going and going and going. It's the beginning of a brand new thing because you, you, you've done this and people are now really getting behind. I don't. I hate saying this story, but they're getting behind what you are and your your attitude almost. People see it really seem to be, and and you yourself are almost metamorphosizing into something entirely new because you've said you've been a photographer you've now been going for a around the world record and uh, uh and people are sort of now how did did you notice that happening was it something you were kind of hoping people would get on board and come with it? like you say the the snowflake into the into the giant snowball did you notice that just happening naturally on this part or was it something you set out to do no so as i said you know i had no intentions of being an adventurer or more accurately, I'm I'm probably an ultra endurance athlete. Um, No, I had no intentions. As I said, I was going to cycle around the world, you know, tick this box, this itch, scratch this itch, and then use that as a leverage to get back into travel photography. Unfortunately, when I got back from the round the world cycle, firstly, I didn't break the record because I got run over in America, but you know, that information is all online. If you want to dig into that one, Um, got back pretty depressed, because of the accident and because I didn't break the record. Um, and also still had no desire to get back into being a working photographer. So the idea of actually going out with my camera to try and make money was giving right. me panic attacks still, you know? Oh, wow. So, you know, what do I do? So I was like, right, well, you know, life goes on. I need to buy food. I need to pay rent. Couldn't afford either of those things. So I moved back in with my mother. Right. Um, in Cheltenham. She lived in a one-bedroom apartment, so I was on the sofa. Um, I, I, I signed on to the job centre. I was on Job Seekers Allowance, um, going in, applying for loads of jobs. You know, I was like trying, you know, I didn't want to do photography, but I, if I needed the two, I could. So I, I was applying for loads of studio jobs, but mainly I was applying for cycling-related jobs. I thought, well, I've just cycled around the world. I kind of know how to fix the puncture. You know, maybe I'll get do a mechanics course in, in bike maintenance and go and work yeah. at a bike shop. I was also applying for jobs with Sustrans um, to, as their bike kit officers to try and encourage kids into cycling to school. Um, oh, cool. But yeah, 2012, you know, for six months I was grinding. I, I didn't even get a re- emails from anyone saying thanks for the, your application, but, it, you know, on this occasion we've gone for somewhere else, which I get it. I was 31 years old. I had no A-levels and I didn't go to university all I've ever done has been a photographer and cycled around the world. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. not exactly <laughs> the glowingest of CVs, right? Um, so eventually after six months, my mother was just up to here with, with me living on her sofa. Um, I was kind of desperate. And I thought, well, actually, the last time I thought of some sort of world record, um, 
I managed to get some funding. I got sponsorship for it, and it allowed me to at least live on this planet and buy food and go off and do these things for about 12 months of my life. So that was the next thing. I thought, well, maybe if I just think of some other record, at least it'll get me out of my mom's house, and at least I'll be able to afford food because that's part of the sponsorship deal, or I might get food sponsored for it, you know, um, and it'll just give me something to do for the next year. And that's when I thought of swimming the length of Britain. That was sort of the, you know, the moment happened was when, well, I was watching Dave Cornthwaite swimming down the Missouri River in America. And I thought, right. wow, a, a swimming adventure looks tough, looks difficult, but also looks magical because every night, you, had, you know, campfires on the edge of the river and, you know, it just looked amazing and kind of looked right up my street. Um, and then also I'd, I had cycled Land's End John O'Groats and I loved exploring Britain. It just it's, it reinstalls installs your faith in humanity doing stuff in Britain because everyone's so friendly and warm and welcoming and that sort of thing. And um, so I thought, well, maybe I can become the fastest person to swim Land's End to John O'Groats because it must have been done. You know, people have hit a golf ball Land's End John O'Groats and pushed a bed and slept in it and yeah. done the whole thing living just off nuts, you know. So people have done, and also bigger swims have been done. There's a Martin Strelson, the Amazon, and the Yangtze, and the Danube, and there's a, a French guy who, who was allegedly swam the Atlantic. You know, so big swims have been done. So I thought it had been done. So I went online. I was like, fastest person to swim lands in John, John McGrath. Anyway, this guy comes up. Forget his name now. We'll call him Tim. Tim swims Land's End to John O'Groats in seven days. I was like, what? <laughs> Set the running record's nine days. How do you swim yeah. it quicker than that? I was like, well, I've got no chance of becoming the fastest. <laughs> um, but anyway, it turns out, actually, this Tim Ferrer um, put a swimming pool on the back of a van and did lengths as they drove it. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's genius. I mean, I was, he swam it, you know, he swam it. Anyway, I thought that was great. Um, and so it, it landed up that no one had even attempted it. So all of a sudden it became a world's first, which world's firsts are really hard. Not yeah. Even if they're physically not difficult, it's very difficult to get any useful information from people because no one's done it before. Okay. It's very difficult to get sponsorship on board because everyone's like, uh, yeah, you know, probably not going to happen. So why am I going to risk it? Yeah. Uh, the investment type thing and that sort of thing. So this sort of was tough to get off the ground, but, you know, I was very grateful that Speedo came on board, right? I mean, literally, I, I think I was like a week into the swim before before they sort oh, of no. said, wow, you really are, you really are doing this. <laughs> and, um, what what happened? Know, Did they get... run up to the shore and dangle some trunks at you? Come on. <laughs> no, I'd, I'd been speaking to them for ages before. And originally they were just sort of, oh, you know, we'll just give you a wetsuit and that's it. And okay, I said, oh, okay. come on, you know, this is really going to happen. You know, you could be title sponsor and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And right. they were like, yeah, okay, yeah, okay, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And then eventually I was sort of there and it was happening. And they had actually even sent someone down, They one of their marketing people, and they're like, you know what, this is, this is, you know, if this guy pulls us off, it's going to be huge. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, they, they jumped on board and just basically paid for the f food and diesel for the, the, um, the sailboat. And also... It's quite expensive getting four people to Land's End and back from John O'Groats. Honestly, like it's 
400 pounds a train ticket nowadays or something if you don't book it far enough in advance right so it was quite expensive and that's you know speedo were amazing coming on board and, and doing that so yeah did that swim and still again no real intention of it leading to anything other than just getting me out getting me out my mum's flat for you know six months type thing um which it did and then eventually you know a lot slower than i was hoping i eventually did get to to john O'Groats, and my life changed the moment i touched ground all of yeah. a sudden literally my life changed overnight not even overnight within an hour you know within an hour of me finishing you know i was live on bbc world news to you know hundreds of millions of people around the world front page of the times you know on every swimming blog and just you know on the one show event the next day i was on the one show sitting next to um, jason donovan it's <laughs> just crazy you know people tweeting him going wow kylie's looking a bit hairy um, <laughs> you know and then all of a sudden it's book deals and you know tv people discovery channel going oh what are you doing next can we send a camera crew to do yeah. it you know agents managers you know uh, and I have to, I really have to give a shout out to Ben Fogel. He was amazing. You know, right. there's, he was, there was not one ounce of jealousy that I had sort of done this big successful adventure. He invited mm. me to this event in London and hosted me um, that he was putting on. And then at the end, you know, he, I remember him talking amongst a whole group of people going, oh, Sean, it's amazing what you've done. Email me tomorrow. I'll, I'll hook you up with a good manager who can make sure that, you know, they filter in all these offers because you're going to get loads of all, all, all these offers coming in and it's good to have someone doing that for you. And I'll put you in touch with a really good literary, literary agent to get you a book deal. And I have to be honest, I remember sitting there going, yeah, whatever, Ben, you just, it's all talk in front of, you know, showing off to all your mates. But honestly, the next day, him and Marina, his wife, yeah. emailed me both separately, putting me in touch with various like literary agents and a manager who can just like look after all the things that were coming in and, and it's yeah. crazy, yeah, just the opportunities that all of a sudden were just coming my way. You know, I'm still, if I'm honest, still riding that wave since <laughs> 2013, you know. And, um, and of course, you know, I've worked hard at, you know, keeping, staying on the wave. You know, the wave yeah. came and I managed to jump on it um, and stay on it. And um, that was when all of a sudden, it's not that I ever even thought of this as a career opportunity it just all of a sudden things were coming to me like oh you you know the book deal about the swim was like oh and no you've cycled around the world oh we'll we'll, we'll you know we'll do it yeah. we'll take it we'll give you a deal on that book as well um then that was penguin random house so all of a sudden i had a two book deal straight out the block <laughs> <laughs> and um and then all of a sudden you know i was like right well people are like what do you want to do next i was like well i want to I want to, of course, I want to complete the length of Britain triathlon. So I yeah. did the run. Um, I actually attempted the run the first time and failed. And then on the second time, um, that's when Discovery Channel said, oh, <laughs> no way. We um, we saw you were running Britain. Because um, I was speaking to them about some other shows, some really right. r- random ones. It was one that was going to be called Cabin Fever, where I was going to go and do a trek into the Alaskan wilderness and then build a cabin. And it was, it was a bit of, bit of I don't know why they thought, I just looked like a lumberjack, I guess. I 
and that was taking too long. Like there was umming and ahhing, and because they wanted someone else involved in it, like an actual yeah. expert. So I was sort of the endurance person, and then there was an actual expert. Anyway, so while they were doing that, I said, "Well, you do that. I'm just going to go off." And you know, I didn't even tell them I rented, attempted the first run of Britain, and then that failed. And then when it, when I got the, when I failed, it got a lot of publicity because I, I failed by taking a selfie while I was there was a little video selfie running along. I tripped on a rock because I didn't see it and. The Sun newspaper had a had a <laughs> quite quite fun with that one, and and everyone you know like ha ha look at Sean taking a you know injured taking a selfie, and then also Discovery were like what you were running Britain? are you going to do it again? Um, you know can we follow you the next time? I was like if you want you know <laughs> if you can keep up type thing, um, and and that's yeah that sort of that was great you know that was it was it was fun. As a photographer, I really enjoyed. I enjoyed a lot more than I thought I would. Creating a documentary, a sort of visual form of my, you know, visual memory of my of my adventures. Actually, you know. Well, well, that's a that's a great way of looking at it. I mean, it's effectively a, a almost a roadmap of your adventures, but in visual form, you just keep going, and you're able to just create this image for people to come on. And there's that word journey again that you've had all these times. <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's wild to see how quickly these type of things snowballed for you. I mean, obviously there's the books and the media appearances, and like I say, Ben Fogel, who himself came into. I don't want to say a, a, a real. I hate using the phrase celebrity because it's not what I mean. But yeah, came yeah. into that everyone's consciousness. And, yeah, yeah, via being a volunteer. I think it was Castaway. I think that's where he kicked off way back when. And, and and now uh, look how he's doing. So this takes us to how one of the things that really interested when I was when I was reading up and more about you was the fact that you even make this point as we've had and we've been hearing about some of the highs and lows and what have you is you've actually even going out and you're speaking uh, um, at schools and events, which again after everything we've spoken about is not something that you've made reference to in the past. I mean, obviously interacting with people and making these things happen. That seems like an entirely new thing, being able to share those experiences in, a, in a, an audible form to, to audiences and, and making a connection. What made you feel you, you was a, what made you feel you wanted to do that? Uh, was it to try and lift people up or because I've seen that these are, uh, there's a lot of classes and works that you do in order to help lift people up and give them that energy what what made you feel you wanted to do that i remember sort of quite early on realizing what actually my job is right and it job in inverted commas you know so people kind of call me an adventurer i'm probably more a non-professional in ultra endurance athlete right so i i don't have an organized committee and organized events that I try and compete in. So I'm a non-professional athlete, which is a bit difficult because actually, how do you actually pay your rent being a non-professional athlete? And I, early on, I realized actually what I really do to pay the bills is I sell stories. I'm a storyteller. Basically I'm a storyteller and I either will sell that story in visual form and for TV and documentaries or I'll sell it in book form. Um, sometimes I sell it in blog forms. Uh, well, I don't sell it, but I put it out there in blog forms. Or and then the last one was sort of doing it in talks. You know, becoming a storyteller for talks. And I soon worked out that actually I could. You know, the the, the big corporations and that have you know budgets to pay me to go and 
do a talk at like Microsoft and Google and all these people that yeah. I've been to, which was amazing. And then what I sort of thought, well, that's great. I can make the money from the big corporations um, and then do the schools and work with the scouts and do all that sort of thing, you know, you know, out of my own time type thing. Um, and it, it was quite nerve-wracking at the beginning. I have to be honest. I remember my first talk, I was like, this is not for me. Like, it's just too much stress. <laughs> I just didn't know what I was doing. But you know what? I thought, you know what? I want to be good at this because actually I think I think it would it would be misusing my my platform by not going out and doing talks because I feel, I genuinely feel I do have a story that I've, you know, my own personal story. I don't preach to people because people are way too intelligent. They can just hear my story and they'll take from it whatever they want. Um yeah. And, and I thought I would regret, you know, if I was 80 or 80 years old in, in the old age home, looking back at my life, having not gone out and done all the public speaking, um, I would regret that because actually now, especially now, once, once you get good at the talks and once you nail it and you've, you've got your story honed down and now I work with individual companies to actually customize the talk specifically for what they want to to tell their usually their their staff their staff and i really get a buzz out of it now actually you know i i wore a heart a heart rate monitor for a talk once and i remember i was backstage and my heart rate was quite high it was probably sort of 90 um you know 80 80 90 whereas normally it's in mid 50s um, and then as soon as they sort of welcomed me on stage, like, and we'd like to introduce Sean Conway, my heart rate went up to like 150, like boom, straight away. And then it stayed at 150 until I delivered my first few lines in the talk. Um, and then it hovered back down and went down to sort of about 80 again at the end. Um, but yeah, I, I really like that. It's like being on the start line for something, you know, you just get that real buzz. Um, and then also, of course, you know, you've got to, you know have no heart to to not enjoy the letters i get from kids that go wow you know your story was amazing and i never dreamed that i could ever you know even ride my bike to school type thing and but seeing you cycle around the world means i'm going to give it a go you know and uh yeah it's great so it's all part of the storytelling i think there's something in me that wants to be and enjoys being a storyteller yeah. Um, I enjoy writing as well, and that's, you know, of course, storytelling is, and, and that sort of thing. So I think, in essence, doing all the, the speaking and that is all part of me just wanting to be a, a storyteller, you know? It's, it's, it's almost funny that it's come all the way from you wanting to be a travel photographer, uh, which in its way is a storyteller, and without, you know, going on the journey that you've effectively made the stories that you're going to tell, as opposed to telling the stories for other places. It's uh, it's all interconnected. Yeah. It's it's absolutely because I was reading on your your website. It's it's school kids. It's big companies. It's everyone. And then there's all the, you know, people that are really drawing stuff from your book and experiences. And you're expi- inspiring people is one of the the big things. I even see that in uh, some YouTube comments on the likes of the documentary. People are getting on their bikes and they're cycling, you know, uh, a, a thousand miles for charity. They're doing it to be yeah. fit. It's uh, and they're looking at, and I guess it's the part we need to come to. They're looking at an unconventional face for it. Dare I suggest yeah. uh, an unconventional figure? And they're going, well, I, I can at least this inspires me to do something. Um, that's going to be because we, we've got to. T- we've certainly got to talk about that. I mean, 
how do you feel about that? Literal members of the public that are looking at you and they're going, you know something, this guy's story and everything that's going on, that inspires me to do something. Is that is that satisfying for you? Oh, it's, it's amazing. You know, it's just like Christmas every day almost when people send these things. And, and it was, it's interesting. So on my website, I've put a, a section called Hiccups, which is all right. the stuff that, that's kind of not gone to plan. Because at one point, especially when I was doing all the TV things, I really noticed that people, yes, there were, it reached a lot of people, but there was quite a lot of people who just thought, oh, well, of course he can do that because, and they, and they would be pretty honest with me. They're like, oh, he, he must be minted. He must have loads of money. Yeah. You know, he must have loads of time. He must have this huge network of people around him. Um, like scientists and biologists and nutritionists and all these sort of things, right? That was quite a, a common presumption. Um, and the other one is, oh, he just might, he's probably a biological freak of nature. Like there's probably something in him that is different to me. So of course he can do these things. And I started to think about that then. And, and it's called outliers, you know, people who do amazing things, but are not necessarily inspiring other people because they're considered outliers. They're considered people on the fringes, you know, for example, you know, I don't know, someone, a racing car driver, for example, for me, or, or Usain Bolt, you know, right. you know, it's inspiring his journey, but there's no way in a million years he would inspire me to go and run hundred meters because I know biologically he's a freak of nature. You know, he's the right height. He's got the, the right fast twitch fibers. Yeah. Blah, 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 right? So I was like, okay, well, that's not going to inspire me to run, run 100 meters because I feel he's an outlier in the world. Um, so I wanted to show people that actually I failed at loads of things and that in itself has actually almost been more inspiring for people. You know, I get more people emailing me going, no way, you've, you've, I didn't realize you had messed up so many things, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> because it proves that actually I'm just kind of a normal and actually – Biologically, I've been tested. I've I've actually been tested in the same laboratory as Jensen Button for my reflexes, um, right. Chris Chris Froome for my for my speed and power, and the Brownlee brothers and Rory McIlroy. You know, I got the opportunity to go and be tested, and <laughs> I have to be honest, secretly I was <laughs> sort of in while I was being tested. I was like, yeah. There's something in me that scientists are going to write about for centuries. You know, there's some hidden gene in me that makes me go longer and further and whatever. Anyway, like we did all the tests and a few weeks later went back for the results. And I remember, I remember the guy looking through his check, the sort of the, the PDF of all my results. And he's like, he had a, quite a big smile on his face at the beginning, thinking he might find something. Right. And then as he flipped every page, just the smile dropped. And by the end, he was like... Oh. Sorry, sorry to say, mate, but actually there's literally nothing special about you. And in fact, your reaction speeds are so slow. If you were a Formula One driver, you'd crash on every corner. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's such a shame. Uh, oh, sorry, oh, no, mate. So I was like, you're... oh, man. And, um, you thought, you thought and they're going to find it, the Conway gene or something. This yeah, is going to yeah. be it. <laughs> <laughs> so you know if anything i actually have a slight disability in the in the world of ultra endurance i lose loads of sweat uh, loads right. of salt sorry i lose like yeah. 3.4 grams of salt per liter of sweat and most people lose like a gram of salt you know so i have to really be on top of my salt intake when i'm doing big things otherwise i just get super dehydrated um so yeah so i i sort of wanted to show people that actually i am just a normal guy 
you know, I don't have loads of money. I work very hard and, you know, I, I make money doing my talks and selling my books and, and sponsorship deals and that sort of thing. But I didn't yeah. just get handed a pot of money and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, I have more time now because this is my job. So I, I do have time to go and train. And of course, that helps. Um, mm. But you remember, I'm, I'm up against other people who also have the time. You know, I'm still going to try and beat them. Right, because this is sport. You know, sport is sport. You've got to, yeah. You're up against the next guy or girl who's uh, attempting the same record as you, um, and and yeah. So and that's been really good. You know, showing people that actually I've failed at many things has has kind of almost inspired people more, which I, which I kind of like. You know. Oh, so in the movie that it ends in the big lab. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's just a regular bloke. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Shoulder high. We've got this cast. It's amazing. Um, yeah. But George, I, I want George Clooney to play me, please. <laughs> we are yeah. going to have to put him into a lot of makeup, but I'm sure we can make that happen. What are you saying? What are you saying? No, I think no, no, I look no. exactly I, like him. Um, I don't know if we're talking about the same George Clooney. <laughs> um, but it, it, it's 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 there's a beautiful honesty to the fact you're saying to people, "We judge me on my my failures because they're the journey to my successes." I think that's something that uh, uh, I think that's really something that people can awesomely identify with. Um, but right, I've got to have a couple of questions. You've been so generous with your time; we really appreciate it. And always remember, you have a um, you do have the disability of. A lot of more athletes will, can hold on to their salt better than you. You have to bear that in mind. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> that's, that's always something to bear in mind. We've had a whole bunch of questions, a whole bunch of stories. Uh, I'll, I'll very quickly fire through some of these. The, the, the beard. We've got to talk about the beard, right? Which, because, oh, uh, yeah. of course, uh, we're doing it for Broadbeard. It, first of all, it's glorious looking. I have to say, I can't even, <laughs> I, I can't even attempt to grow a beard anything more than this. It just stops. It just oh, stops. No. Got uh, sadly, my, I think my dad's genes let me down somewhere. I think he was uh, effectively a coconut, and this is as far as it'll go. Um, but the story that I've, I've heard is that you grew the beard to combat jellyfish. Yeah, that is absolutely true. Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, Where it was on the swim. Where did come from? Well, it just happened by mistake. I started the swim uh, uh, clean-shaven, of course, and then, uh-huh. you know, I, I was getting stung on the face by jellyfish, and I was just like, well, that's just part and parcel. And then a, about a week went by when I got stung in the face, but actually the sting didn't hurt as much where I had a little bit of facial hair, you know, just a little bit of bum fluff, a little bit like you. Um, right. And... Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that, that, that hit me hard. I, won't I wasn't expecting it to hit me that hard, but it really... Ah, sorry, continue. Sorry. Cheap shot, cheap shot, my bad. Um, cheap shot, well taken. Good for you, good for you. And I just... It, basically, I was realised that the where I had a bit of facial hair, it physically stopped the um, the tentacles touching my skin, and it just okay. was acted as a bit of a barrier. And once I kind of cottoned onto that, I was just like, right, that's it. I'm just going to grow this massive anti-jellyfish protection beard. Um, and and it, it, it definitely worked. Um, <laughs> what didn't work, um, and I get this question a lot, is there's also quite a, another very common theory on what else fixes jellyfish stings. Um, and I'm here as a public service announcement to tell you all that it it does not work. It does not work. Don't let anyone trick you into that one, especially if you get stung on the face, because I'll tell you what, it's pretty embarrassing. Um, 
so yeah so so I'll just in case there. just in case anyone's not clued on the the p does not cure a jellyfish thing i might be one of the few other people that know this because where i live in the, right here on the west coast of scotland i'm i'm down in ayrshire we're covered by beaches i discovered this as a young boy <laughs> this, this is not the case so i'm finally glad to hear someone is making these public service announcements yeah no they have, definitely they, they have to get you on every single channel in the summertime to let people know yeah <laughs> let people true. know but uh you keep the beard looking glorious. Do you think it's become? Uh, do you think it's become of your identity almost? People, people see you, and because all of the pictures. I mean, it's it's very eye catching to see someone in the in your you know the biking gear, especially uh, you know the helmet on, the the tight top, but with the big beard coming out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, do you think it's become part of your identity? So in the early days, I have to be honest, I was getting quite a kick out of it. You know, everyone's like, oh, the beard, you know, and every interview I did and every photo shoot, everyone's like, oh, do you still have the beard? Do you still have the beard? And yeah, it kind of became my thing. And I, I, truthfully, I quite liked it because A, it just it means I didn't have to shave. And when I shave, I get a really bad rash and I've got quite sensitive skin. And and also, like, my beard's kind of, it's, it's, it's well formed and it, it's, you know, it's not too scraggly when it's this length type thing. And mm -hmm. I kind of liked it. And then what happened is I met my wife and she just loves ginger people with beards. <laughs> pretty, pretty niche market there. Um, okay. And um, okay. yeah, she, she, when we first met, we actually had this rule that we weren't allowed to Google each other or even become Facebook friends. I think we only became first Facebook friends after we were married, I think. Um, wow. And so basically she's never seen me without a beard, like ever. And she loved the beard. Like that's why she fancied me at the beginning. She's like, oh wow, I just love this like rugged <laughs> ginger guy with a beard. So now I'm just terrified of divorce if I get rid of it. <laughs> that's basically where I am now. Um, but yeah, it's laziness to be honest. I quite enjoy not having not, in, not having to think about it. And exactly. I mean, this is probably the wrong platform to to, to admit yeah. that I actually don't do anything with it product-wise. <laughs> Maybe I should. <laughs> hey, hey, who knows? Uh, if, if John's watching uh, the boss of Broadbeards, let's hook Sean up. I mean, if yeah. his wife likes it in this stage, there's yeah. a bit of grooming in that. Oh my wow. goodness. Oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> we're we are going to be off to the racing. I love the fact as well, you didn't actually become Facebook friends until after you were married. I love the idea of yeah, people, your wife's friends maybe not knowing how the relationship was going and one day, <laughs> ping, some, yeah. married. <laughs> and what makes it worse is because I was, you know, to kind of be a little bit more under the radar, I'm a girl on Facebook. So all of a sudden, <laughs> my wife's married to a girl with a different name, and everyone's like, "What?" <laughs> wow, there really has been some changes since yeah. the last episode. Well, Sean, uh, this has been just an absolute delight. Um, we're gonna say, um, do you have anything coming up that you're working on just now? I know, obviously, uh, is any more books or anything in the pipeline, or anything um, you're planning for 2021, maybe? Yeah. So, well, book wise. So I just wrote my first sort of young adult literature. It's called The Adventures of William Wilder, oh. Tempura's Treasure. It's the first of a three-book series. So it's, oh, yeah. and it's a proper book. You know, this is not just a, a kid's photo book. There's 23,000 words. And I'm really loving it. I really enjoyed it. And uh, um, I've got two more books. So this is the male character. The second book is a female character called Nora Knight. Um, uh -huh. And then the third book, 
So we all the three books intertwine, but you can only read the boys' book if you want, and you can also only read the girls' book. They do they are standalone. And then oh, the really? third book is when they team up together. So the stories kind of intertwine, and then at the end they go on this epic adventure together and and you know solve mysteries and that. So it's a bit of Hardy Boys, bit of Indiana Jones, um, yeah, which I quite like. So that's on the book front. Um, adventure wise, you know, I'm a new dad. Um, my son's 17 months old, and oh, and I have wow. to say, lockdown has been fabulous. You know, I've really, I, I've, I've been a big fan uh, of. I had being... a baby at the start of lockdown as well. It's been a, it's been a real gift getting to spend lots of time oh, wow. with my kid, lots of time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? So, uh, and I'll never get that time back now. So it's it's great to be home for a bit. I am planning something big, which is meant to be this year. I now may have also missed the weather window for 2021. So it's possibly now 2022, which is, okay. yeah, it's a long way because I'd actually done two big training, big training runs. And when I, when I do my big training blocks, it's, whew, my last training block was... <laughs> 70 hours a week yeah it's between 60 and 70 hours a week training right. so it's heavy and i've done you know i've been doing that and then obviously covid happened so i had to delay and then i rested they did another big training block and then delayed again and yeah so it's a bit frustrating that i i'm sort of doing all this training um for nothing but it, you know especially training that takes so much time away from the yeah. family for nothing is kind of <laughs> kind of annoying but um yeah watch the space and um it's big. It's big. The next thing I'll do is the biggest thing I probably ever will do, which is a bit of a worry in itself because what I don't know what I'll do after that, but um, I don't know. <laughs> I've always fancied working in an animal sanctuary, so maybe that will be my next 10 years. Oh, right. oh wow. I was, I was thinking the next big adventure was going to space. I was like, yes, <laughs> let's do this. Uh, first ginger beard in space. That would be awesome. Yeah, that would exactly. be awesome. Well, listen, uh, everyone watching Broadbeard, uh, thanks very much for doing it. And make sure to check out everything that's going to be going on with Sean. We're going to be posting links in our social media. Sean, what I'll do is I'll pop you in the green room and I'll finish up here with the boys and girls. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for the wonderful Mr. Sean Conway. Thank you very much. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Broadcast. Will you join it? Make sure we will post and give you all the information about where you can check out everything Sean's up to. And make sure to check out those books as well. It's like the type of ones you used to read when you were a school that really just fired off the synapses. Make sure to check them out. They're going to be awesome. Uh, of course, check out everything we're doing over at Broadbeard and we're going to see you next time. Now, here is the bit, inevitably, in every show where I have to try and not look at the computer while I'm playing the closing sequences. Will I manage it? Will I manage it? I think I might have done it. <laughs>